Let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, we need you to speak to us this morning. We come to this place, this time in our service where we study. We open your word and we want to understand it. Uh, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. We want it to uh, take root in our lives and change how we behave, how we treat each other, what we do and don't do. So God, would your Holy Spirit communicate with each one of us this morning precisely the way we need to be communicated with. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in a series uh, studying a little book of the New Testament, and the book that we're studying is the book of James. James, of course, is the brother of Jesus. And I said last week quite a few times that James' book is a little different than other books in the New Testament in that it is a New Testament wisdom book. Well, what does that mean? Well, it reads differently than other letters. If you've been reading it, I encourage you to begin reading it. You will discover there's a different rhythm in this book. James seems to jump from a subject, then jump to another subject that at first seems not terribly related, but then later on you find out how it is. Uh, Also, another uh, significant factor to note is that in wisdom literature, it's meant to be practical. Wisdom literature is meant to change how we think and how we act. It's down to earth. It doesn't get any more basic or any more practical than wisdom literature. Now, in James' book, James is inviting us to live our lives in the presence of God. In other words, knowing that he is with us, knowing that he is in us, knowing that we have his power to make changes and to grow and to become more like Jesus. Last week, we talked about how to view our trials How to view our problems. Why did we start there? Well, because that's where James starts. Boom, immediately starts talking about counting various trials or various difficulties. Count it all joy, he says. And we saw that our problems don't just test us, which they certainly do. They actually reveal us. They show us what's going on in our lives under the surface. And uh, we saw that there is always a purpose in our trials. God guarantees that because God is using our trials and our challenges, our difficulties to shape our character. Now, does God cause all of those trials? Well, no, he causes some of them perhaps, but if there's evil or badness in a trial, God is not the author of evil, scripture tells us. And James wants to be sure that we're very clear on this. And he says, you know, God tempts no one to sin, not ever. No how. Uh, But God does promise to use even the bad stuff that comes into our lives, use trials to be at work in us for our good. When we trust him, when we hold on to him, when we remain steadfast. And we saw that when we remain steadfast in our trials, we grow, we get stronger, we mature spiritually. There's this great promise that James gives us in this little book of wisdom about steadfastness or perseverance. He says this, blessed is the man who remains, and he means women too. This is just the broad, you know, general uh, inclusive sense of man. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That's an interesting thing, the crown of life. What is the crown of life? Well, to be honest with you, we don't know. Not exactly anyway, Uh, but it's cool. I'll guarantee you that. It's cool. Uh, It has something to do with loving God and obeying God and trusting God and believing in God, even when doing so is anything but 
easy. Even when doing so uh, means not doing what others are doing because others are quitting, others are giving in, others are forsaking their faith because it is just too hard or too costly or too difficult or too threatening to deny self and to follow Jesus. That's what a disciple does over and over and over. Deny self, follow Jesus. But James says the one who remains steadfast under trial will receive a crown of life. And if you've ever watched any kind of competition, a race, a match, a championship game, a a state championship, a national championship, and you've watched a team or an individual win, well, the joy that they express in a situation like that is always too much to contain. And if you notice, it kind of explodes out of people, right? They start jumping around and screaming and yelling and crying and embracing and hugging. And well, that joy, that joy that we've all witnessed is a watered-down taste at best of what receiving the crown of life is going to be like. At best. Now, here's the thing. The person who does persevere and is steadfast to the end and receives the crown of life is the person that God equips and God sustains and God enables to be steadfast. Isn't our God so good? He equips He sustains, he blesses, and then he rewards. What did you do? You're the receiver. You're the receiver. You're the receiver. Now today, we're going to shift gears. Again, very practical message. Down to earth. So down to earth, it's almost embarrassing. But uh, James should be embarrassed, not me. We're talking about what you, you might call James brotherly wisdom. And God knows we need this. James brotherly wisdom for our relationships, our interactions with each other, our communication with each other. It's very interesting. One researcher, William Menninger, found that about 80% of the time when somebody loses their job, it's not technical incompetence for which they lose their job. It's actually relational or emotional incompetence, either of them or maybe of their boss or maybe of the culture, you know, where they work. There's relational, lots of relational incompetence going on in the place where they work. And here's the thing. If we just listen to what James tells us in this little book that he's written, if we just put into practice what we're going to read in a moment, what he tells us, most of our relational incompetence would disappear in us, in our boss, you know, in our place of work. Most of our relational incompetence would disappear. So keep that thought in mind. Secondly, there's another researcher, James Lynch, and he has uh, done an exhaustive research project where he has discovered that um, lonely and isolated people actually live shorter lives. Lonely, isolated people actually live shorter lives, people without healthy relationships. And here again, what James instructs us to do in his little letter goes a long way towards eliminating isolation and loneliness. That's point number two. Log that back in your mind. So what a good thing that you're here for this message. Somebody told me that you need to be here for this message. Because if you just practice putting what we're going to study in a moment, James' wisdom to work, there's a really, really, really good chance, a higher chance that, number one, you will keep your job. 
And number two, you won't die this year because you won't be lonely or isolated. And number three, you see, uh, well, I already said it. You won't be lonely. So keep your job. You won't be lonely. You won't die. All good reasons to listen to this sermon, okay? Are you with me so far? <laughs> I figured I had to give you some kind of reason to want to pay attention to this advice that's coming. Otherwise, you're just going to tune it out. But here, here too, this is not complicated what James tells us. Uh, everybody will get this instantly. Uh, what James commands is it's easy to remember. So it's easy to carry with us, so to speak. And it's also even easy to do, assuming you have the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Impossible to do without the Holy Spirit, but with the Holy Spirit, it's actually not difficult to do this. Now, I'm an introvert. I can do this stuff. My wife, Holly, is an extrovert. She can do this stuff. Doesn't matter where you are on the personality profile spectrum or what have you. This is all stuff we can do with the help of God. Are you still with me? Okay, and here's what James says. This is what we're going to dive into this morning. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. That little take note of this is interesting because that means listen up. That's a are you with me question. My dear brothers and sisters, are you with me? Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Everybody ought to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's one quick and two slows. That's what we're going to go through this morning. One quick and two slows. Now I wonder, have you ever known somebody who would have been better off if they had been quicker to listen and slower to speak? Go ahead, you can nudge them. <laughs> Some time ago, uh, this is actually a serious story. Some time ago, Holly and I um, welcomed one of Holly's old friends into our home. She came to visit. This is a friend of Holly she hadn't seen in decades. This is a friend from uh, middle school years. And so, as you can imagine, a lot of catching up to do, a lot of visiting to do. And, and I was mostly an observer of watching the two of them interact. And uh, this lady who uh, Holly was kind of meeting really for the first time as an adult, one of the things I observed was that this, this, this lady talked nonstop. I mean, she, she never let up, nor did she let anyone get a word in edgewise. Uh, she never asked you a question, or as I would observe, Holly, a question. I, I interacted with her too some, but uh, she never inquired about you. She just talked and talked and talked about herself. At one point, the thought occurred to me that this poor lady has no idea that she's exhausting people by talking at them nonstop. And she would be so much better off. Her relationships and her interactions with people would be so much better and so much deeper and so much more impactful if she just knew how to stop talking and start listening. Uh, the Bible says this in Proverbs. It says, the one who has knowledge uses words with restraint. And whoever has understanding is even-tempered. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. Interesting. Uses words with restraint. Holds their tongues. This is exactly what James is getting at. This is what he's talking about. Anybody here ever speak too quickly and then regret it? Mass confession. Anybody? Okay, we're all in that boat. We've all been there too often 
uh, perhaps. Anybody here ever listen too quickly and then regret it? I bet not. Uh, that doesn't even really make any sense because when we really pay attention to someone who's talking to us, we're connecting with them. We are creating relationship, enhancing relationship. We are making and deepening friendships. Quite honestly, if you want to be a good teammate, if you want to be a good schoolmate, if you want to be a good roommate, if you want to be a good work associate, if you want to be a good friend, a good counselor, a good anything as it relates to people, then be quick to listen. Now, honestly, that's Uh, easy on the surface of things, it's a little harder for us to put it into practice because listening is an act of humility. You see, it's an act of servanthood. When I listen to somebody, I'm, I'm taking my agenda and I'm setting it aside because I'm going to listen to you, to them. I'm putting aside my chance to show people how much I know. I'm putting aside my chance to show people what things I can do, where I've been, what I've done, how clever I am, how insightful I am. When I'm really listening, I'm not trying, you see, to get my way. I'm not trying to manage impressions of me. I'm actually serving the person that I'm listening to. And I would just uh, point out, it's not a coincidence either that as the Bible describes God, our God, The Bible describes God as a listener, as one who hears. Uh, The psalmist says this about God, the righteous cry out. Righteous, that doesn't mean people with no sin. The righteous are those that are trusting in God to forgive their sin. That's who the righteous is. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. It's just a fact, says the psalmist. Uh, The psalmist says, evening, morning, and noon. In other words, it doesn't matter what time of day or night. I cry out in distress and he hears my voice. That's the kind of God he is. The psalmist says, the Lord hears the needy. Anybody here in the needy category? That's all of us. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. The captive idea there is people in distress. People who've been picked up, taken out of their homes and taken to a foreign land. Literally is who that's talking about. But that's people in distress. In Proverbs, it says this, the Lord is far from the wicked. The wicked are those who don't have a relationship with God. Uh, They're not talking to God. Maybe they don't believe in God. They're certainly not asking God to do anything for them. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And then there's the way God describes himself in Isaiah. God says, before they call, he's referring to his people, before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The point is, friends, God hears every prayer. Every expression of the human heart. God listens actually to every cry. And he knows the longing of every heart. Your heart, my heart, everybody's heart. The God of the Bible is a God who hears and who listens and who cares. And then there's Jesus. I think Jesus is the literal embodiment of the wisdom that James is sharing in this little passage. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Friends, that is Jesus. That's a perfect description of Jesus. A striking thing about Jesus was his capacity to notice folks that other people didn't or wouldn't notice. Lepers, children, 
the sick, the lame, the blind, the needy, Samaritans. You know, often Jesus would engage these people. How would he engage them? Well, with questions. Often with questions. Questions are the way that we actively listen. You ask questions. Questions are a way to deepen relationships. Jesus asked a blind man once, what do you want me to do for you? Come on, Jesus, how dumb can you be? He's blind. Well, but Jesus engages the blind man, addresses him, asks him what his thoughts are. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked a a, a demon-possessed boy's father one time, how long has he been like this? Jesus didn't need to know that piece of information. Maybe Jesus already knew the answer to that question. I'm not sure. But Jesus engages and wants to know. Jesus asked a crowd of people one time. All these people were crowding around him. He was on his way with his disciples, and the crowds were all over the place. And some woman who had an issue of bleeding for many, many years reached in somehow and touched him because she believed that if she could do that, she would be healed. And she touches him in the press of all these people, and she is healed. And Jesus stops the whole procession and says, Who touched me? And Peter, for one, looks at Jesus and goes, Jesus, the whole dang crowd touched you. What, what, What do you mean? Who touched me? Well, Jesus is going to stop the whole thing and he's going to enter into a conversation with a woman who pressed in and touched him. Jesus was full of questions. Uh, One time he asked a group of gathered Pharisees this question, uh, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? This was a loaded question. Uh, Pilate asked Jesus one time, this is as Jesus, the end of his life, you know, he appears before the governor Pilate and Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus doesn't answer him. Instead, Jesus asks Pilate a question. He says, well, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? What a great question. Pilate, where do you stand on that question? Once after teaching his disciples about the kingdom of heaven and the coming judgment that was going to come, uh, Jesus just asked them this question. He says, have you understood all these things? Because he's got the sense that they're not getting this, you know. Have you understood what I'm saying? Have you understood my teaching? He wanted to know. One time his disciples were confused about something he said, and so he asked them, do you still not see or understand? That was his question. Are your hearts hardened? He asked them. I would love to hear that conversation as that unfolded. One time on the Sabbath, Jesus was eating at the home of a very prominent Pharisee, somebody who disapproved of Jesus and his practices. And we are told in that passage, this is in Luke 14, that Jesus was being carefully watched. And they had actually planted someone. Can you, can you imagine the magnitude of, of arrogance and pride involved in this? They had actually planted a guy uh, near Jesus who had this a- abnormal swelling of his body. Not sure what that condition was, but he had abnormal swelling of the body. And they're waiting to see what Jesus will do with this hurting individual on the Sabbath. Because they had views about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And what does Jesus do? Well, he asks the Pharisees and the experts in the law a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He's going to draw them out. Another time, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they told him. There were several answers. And then he asked them, who do you say I am? Who do you say 
I am? And I might add, that's the most important question a person can ever answer. Uh, one time after Jesus' resurrection, you remember Peter, they were, uh, they were uh, observing uh, the Passover meal together, and, and Jesus instituted this meal that we call the Lord's Supper. And at that meal, uh, Jesus said, you guys are all going to fall away. You're all going to deny me. And Peter said, nope, not, not me, Jesus. I, you know, I will never, ever, ever, fall. I will never deny you. I will never not own up to following you and being your follower. These other guys might, but not me. And he said that these other guys might, but not me. And as you know, how many times did he deny Jesus? Three times. Well, what's so interesting is that in John 21, Jesus pursues Peter and Jesus asked Peter three times, three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times. Point being, being you, you can survey the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus, and it's just full of questions, 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 questions. Some people think of Jesus as the answer man when in reality he's more the question man. Always raising questions. Really fast, uh, if, if you're with somebody, turn to the person next to you and just take a wild guess. How many questions do you think we have recorded in the Gospels? Questions that Jesus asked. Just, just take a guess real quick. Tell somebody you're near there. There is a book called Jesus is the Question. And the subtitle of that book, so this person actually took the time to count this. The subtitle of that book is The 307 Questions Jesus Asked and the Three he answered. Isn't that interesting? The point is, is that Jesus asked questions all the time. And often he would pose a question, let people wrestle with it. They wouldn't know the answer and he would just leave them there. He wouldn't answer it for them. He wanted them to wrestle. I think he wanted them to communicate. That's what he wanted. And Jesus asked questions of tax collectors, prostitutes, fishermen, people caught in adultery, religious experts, Gentiles, magistrates, Samaritans, lame people, blind people, people possessed by demons. Why? Why all the questions, Jesus? Nope. Probably multiple answers to that, but one certainly is he was interested. He was genuinely interested. He really wanted to know people what they thought and what they believed and what they feared and what they wanted. The point is, questions helped Jesus get to know people. Guess what? Questions can help us get to know people. Jesus knew too that questions are a great way to engage people spiritually. Recently, our staff read a book. It was all about something called questioning evangelism. It was just great. It was just chock full of great kinds of questions that you could... You can ask people to engage them on faith kinds of issues when it's appropriate, when it's a natural part of a, of a conversation. Questions help you get to know people. Questions actually help you draw people out and build people up. People love to be listened to. Do you like to be listened to? Never mind, I don't have time for that. Um, <laughs> we love this. We love it when somebody will take the time and serve us that way. This is just how life works. If you want to get to know people, if you want to engage people, if you want to make friends with people, if you want to have a positive impact on people, then listen, talk less, listen more, ask more questions. 
You know, depending on how well you know someone, how well you're acquainted with them, that always determines the appropriateness of a particular question, right? Um, you know, how are you doing? No, no, I mean, really, how are you doing? How are you doing spiritually? How are you doing relationally? How are you doing in school? How are you, you know, I mean, really, I want to know. Uh, what do you believe matters most in your life? I'd love to hear what you think about that. Uh, who do you follow? Because, you know, I kind of believe everybody follows someone or something. What, what is it you follow? Who do you follow? What are you learning these days? I'd love to know what you're learning. How's work? I mean, really, how is work going? How are the kids? How's the marriage? How was your summer? What did you do? What have you done lately that you felt made a significant difference? And, and why? I'd love to hear that. And then just listen. Listen to people's answers. And then ask them more questions once they've answered, right? Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Practice putting James' brotherly wisdom to work. The wisdom that he saw operative in his brother's life, in Jesus' life, and see if it's not helpful. See if God doesn't use it. Ask, obviously, ask the Holy Spirit to help you because you're going to need his help to do this. Now, uh, James goes on to say, be slow to speak. What, what exactly is he getting at there? Uh, he's not just telling us to talk less. That could be one thing he's telling us to do, but he's not just simply telling us to talk less. Be slow to speak actually means allow God to manage your mouth. That's a little bigger than just talking less, isn't it? Allow God to manage your mouth. You know, be thoughtful about your speaking. Be prayerful about your speaking. Be careful about your speaking. That's primarily what James is getting at when he says, be slow. Be careful about speaking. Now, again, where do you think James observed the power of that piece of wisdom? Anybody? Good, Jesus, that's good. It means you're kind of listening. That's good. That is exactly where. Uh, last Sunday, I tried to make the point over and over that James got his wisdom, what's in this little book, while watching his older brother, Jesus, navigate life. Remember, we talked about Joseph, the dad, dying, leaving Mary, probably with seven or more children. Who's the oldest? It's Jesus. Jesus has got to take the reins. He's got to be the man of the family. He's got to navigate what the family does in the shadow of dad's death. How is the family going to put food on the table? James is watching all of this. It's interesting. You know that when Jesus was 12 years old, that means James would have been, I don't know, 11, 10, 9, I don't know. When Jesus was 12 years old, he and his family had traveled to Jerusalem to the feast of Passover. This is what they did every year. And they observed the feast there with family, with some acquaintances. And then they began their journey home. And they traveled a whole day's journey away. And then it dawned on Mary or Joseph, one of them, did you, did you count the kids? No, I, I, I thought you did. Well, no, I thought you were going to, Joseph, that's your job. And so, okay, okay, let's count them. One, two, three, four, five, six. We're missing one, they realized. Jesus was missing. Their oldest son wasn't with them. So they travel a day's journey back to Jerusalem. Long story short, here it is. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers. And look at what he's doing. Listening to them. And asking them questions. Hmm. James knew someone, a slightly older brother named Jesus, who at 12 years of age was learning to let God manage his mouth. 
At age 12, Jesus was living a life marked by listening and asking questions. Is this normal for 12-year-olds? Well, you seem confused about this. No, it is not. Not really. (laughs) Not really that normal. Yeah. But Jesus was listening, and he was asking questions before giving answers. This always intrigues me. I'm sure I'm going to be mentioning it so many times you're going to get tired of hearing it. But, you know, James, after watching his brother grow up, navigate life, watching his brother declare himself to be the Messiah, God, decided, James decided that Jesus was right. His brother is God. His brother is the Messiah. And so therefore, from James' perspective, Jesus' wisdom was greater than any other wisdom on earth or in heaven. Jesus' wisdom is the wisdom of God. And do you see that James is showing us and sharing that wisdom with us And that's James' brotherly wisdom. It came from his brother, and now James is imparting it to us. And here's the thing. This is the way wisdom stuff works. You can either obey it, put it into practice, and profit from it, or you can ignore it to your own peril. That's the way wisdom stuff works. That's the challenge that's in our laps this morning. You know, it is staggering to me how easy it is to be totally unaware of our verbal behavior when we're interacting with each other. You know, we talk and everybody in the conversation can know that we are talking too much except us. So I had a a young pastor come to me this week and wanted to talk, had a bunch of questions. He's 30 years old, very young, and he's the senior pastor of a church. Uh, and it's a very odd set of circumstances that put him in that position. And, you know, I, he came in, I asked him a couple of questions, and then I launched. And I talked, I bet, for almost a solid hour, uh, where all he did was the, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. You know, he's doing this, and I'm just talking, talking, talking. And I, I stopped, <laughs> finally, finally at dawn, I said, you know what I'm preaching on this Sunday? He's like, no, no, what are you preaching on? Well, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And uh, he just laughed because, you know, he understood that I was, you know, I was, I was, I had hit a stride and I I was just loving everything I was saying, you know. (laughs) I'm not sure he was, but, you know, everybody knows, everybody in the conversation knows you should just shut up except you. That was my problem. You see, James' brotherly wisdom demands that we all do some self-assessment if we're going to live in wisdom. We need to assess our conversational lives with each other. Do I talk too much? Uh, Do I listen too little? Am I hurting my relationships because I don't know when to shut up or how to ask questions? Friends, if your listener's eyes kind of glaze over, After a while, you know, while you're talking to them, they they look dull. There's a vacant stare. You might be talking too much. If you find yourself almost physically having to block people so they can't get away from you, you know, while you're talking to them, you might be talking too much. If you can't remember the last time you listened to someone say something, 
you might be talking too much. And if while you are talking to people, they're looking at their watch and they're looking around the room and it looks like they're looking for an escape route, you might be talking too much. If you have trouble making healthy friendships and sustaining them, if people don't seem to include you, readily want to include you in their, in their conversations, if you are always the one initiating relationship and it just seems like nobody initiates relationship with you, it could be because you're talking too much and you don't listen. You might want to memorize what James says here. It's, a, it's so easy to memorize this. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. And when in conversation, you can ask yourself, am I letting others talk? Am I actually listening when they do? That's another important question. Some people are just chronic, habitual, addictive interrupters. Do you know anybody like that? Uh, If that's you, (laughs) if that's you, there, there may be people around you who have just given up ever finishing a sentence. And I'm here to tell you, if that's you, you need to stop that because you're killing conversation. You're killing friendship and relationship. It will make you a person that no one wants to be around if your communication isn't reciprocal back and forth. Your turn, my turn. Your turn, my turn. You might want to ask yourself if this is an area where you struggle. You might want to ask yourself, why do I talk so much if that's you? Is it because you're anxious? Is it because you're you're just so self-conscious conscious and and, you know silence of any kind? You know, if you feel like that's something you've got to cover up and fill in. Is it because you have a need to be the center? of attention? Is that why perhaps you talk so much? Is it because you really don't care what others think? You only actually care about what you think. Is it because you want others to know how smart you are or what you've done? Frankly, if it's any of those kinds of things behind why you talk so much, you need to repent of that because that's just self-centered sin. Proverbs says that when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent, is wise. See, a person who overwhelms others with words is really just being self-centered. They're being arrogant. They're being obsessed with being liked or having attention or something like that. They're certainly not loving their neighbor as themselves because your neighbor wants to be heard just like you do and this is why these commands you know be quick to listen be slow to speak are about way more than just behavioral mod way more than that they are about the condition of your soul if you find that you have a problem in this area look to your soul here's the thing if we really are following jesus trusting in jesus if we really are getting our identity from what Jesus says about us and what Jesus has done for us, then guess what? We are free to serve others. We don't have to impress them. 
We are free to ask them questions and listen well. We don't need them to embrace our ideas and our experiences and think that we hung the moon. We don't need to talk nonstop. We're actually free to listen. If you are following Jesus and if you are getting your identity from him, you can relax in any relationship, no matter how important you think this person is, no matter how much you think you ought to get their approval, you don't need their approval. Not if you have Jesus. You don't have to be accepted or liked or the center of attention or you don't have to make that relationship work. You just have to be you in Jesus. And oh yeah, by the way, uh, you have to love your neighbor as yourself. And in conversation, that means speaking sometimes the truth in love. Sometimes our conversation goes down that path and needs to. But it also means listening well. It always also means listening well. And this brings us to James' third command here. He says, be slow to anger. You know, anger rarely, 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 if ever, helps communication. In anger, we say and we do really stupid, regretful things. In anger, we lash out, we strike verbal blows that leave emotional marks. In anger, we do things that we later wish we could take back but can't. Aren't you glad we don't have a problem with anger in our churches? (laughs) James is actually quite straightforward about this because he's writing to Christians who are in churches, and this is what he says to them. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. It's just about you, 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 to spend it on your passions. And that about sums it up. James just nails this. He gets it exactly right. We want things, we don't get them, so we get angry. I want something, I don't get it, so I'm mad. And then we judge others, and then we gossip about them, and we slander them, And we murder them. James tells us why anger is so destructive in our communication. He says, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. It never does. Human anger never does. Understand our human anger always has limited information. You might think you know the whole story. You don't. You can't possibly. Human anger always has limited perspective. You are usually only looking at a situation through your own perspective, not through anybody else's, not usually. Human anger always has a limited grasp of the situation, even though we think we don't. God's anger, something very, very different. God has all the information, all of it, every bit of it, every piece of information. God knows and sees every perspective. He knows exactly what your perspective and my perspective and this person's perspective is, and then there's God's perspective. God has a total grasp of the situation. And yes, God does get angry quite a lot. Why? Well, because there's a lot to be angry about. God is angry at sin. He is angry at sin in the world. 
God is angry at the sin of the evil one who's always trying to steal and rob and kill and destroy. Yes, God is angry about that. And God is angry about the sin in you and me. He's angry about injustice. He's angry about violence and deceit and lies and untruth and selfishness and evil that sin causes. God is angry about all that stuff. Don't think for one second God is apathetic about sin and evil. He does not turn a blind eye or shrug his shoulders. Oh, well, what are you going to do? Well, on the contrary, God does something about it. God, we are told, is going to judge sin and punish evil, every bit of it. And in fact, as you know, he's already punished the sins of his people in the death of his son, Jesus. What good news that is. All of your communication rottenness and mine has already been punished in Jesus, who took that punishment, I might add, silently. We'll come back to that. The Apostle Paul says God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath, God's punishment, God's anger through him, through Jesus? Jesus saves you and me from the anger of God that we justly deserve. You see, at the cross, the full wrath and anger of God was taken by Jesus for you, for me. At the cross, we see God's anger towards sin and God's love for us sinners, and it's a marvelous thing to see. You see, today, our souls, our spirits can be actually forgiven. They can be restored to right relationship with God, so the communication with God is now fully open, fully flowing, Today, our souls can begin the process of healing and growing that needs to happen inside us because of the brokenness and sin in us. And all of this because of Jesus. God's anger toward us has been assuaged because of Jesus. And our anger towards others can begin to be healed so that we can communicate with wisdom, brotherly wisdom, because of Jesus. Therefore... (laughs) We can actually be slow to anger. We can die to the desires in us that cause all these hurtful ways that we communicate. We can be long-suffering with each other, patient with each other. We can be good listeners, quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to anger. Now, James tucks one more thing, uh, one more little word into this passage. It's a very, very, very subversive word. And we might read this and not catch it quickly. But in the ancient world, boy, they would have caught it immediately when when James wrote this word. Let me read this and see if you can pick out the word. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Do you have the word? You see, people in the social sciences who study this sort of thing, they will tell you there is a very close relationship in human society between power and words. Um, the more power you have, the more words you get to use. Winston Churchill, one of my favorite characters of history, reading about his life, he was a powerful guy, prime minister of Great Britain during the Second World War. He talked a lot. At dinner one time, uh, his son-in-law was talking and Churchill had jumped in and just interrupted him. And then the son-in-law tried to interrupt him, you know, get back in the conversation. And Churchill immediately responded back by saying, 
Don't interrupt me when I'm interrupting you. <laughs> he just assumed, right, that it was his prerogative to interrupt because of the power that he had and the position. And I'll tell you what, CEOs tend to talk a lot and rich people can tend sometimes to talk a lot and experts talk a lot and pastors, we just won't even go there. You ever been in a situation where somebody's talking and because of their position, there's really nothing you can do, there's nothing you can say, there's nowhere you can go, you're trapped, you're stuck. All you can do is sit there and listen to them drone on and on and on and on and on and on and on. You ever been in a situation like that? (laughs) Well, in the ancient world, it was worse, worse than you have it right now. Uh, They had a saying, here is the saying, as is the speech, so is the life. And what that saying meant was, the more important you are, the more words you're allowed to use. That's the way it worked in that world. And the really subversive word that James uses in this passage, the word everyone. Everyone should be quick to listen. You see, that's not the way it was in ancient Rome or Greece or the way it is today. The rule then was let the slave be quick to listen. Let the poor be quick to listen. Let women be quick to listen. Let the peasant be quick to listen. But let the rich and the powerful use as many words as they want to enhance their honor, their status, their power, their glory. But James says, no. Nope. There is a new community now, and it's led by a leader that leads not like any other leader. Jesus is not that kind of leader. In fact, we're told in the Gospel of Matthew, this is quite intriguing to me. Uh, It says that when Jesus was accused by the chief priests and the elders, what did he do? He gave no answer. And then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply. Not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor, of Pilate. Wow. Think about this. Jesus is the verbal expression of God. The Bible calls Jesus the word of God, the living word. That's who Jesus is. Do you think Jesus is entitled to say as much as he wants to say? Do you think he's got anything good to say, anything truthful to say? You bet, he's got more to say than all of us combined and it would be worth listening to and yet he remains silent. Why did Jesus do that? Well, he was silent like a sheep led to slaughter. This description is a familiar one. In Isaiah 53, we read these words. Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Who was controlling his mouth? He was letting the Father control his mouth. Why? The Apostle Paul says this. He's talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. A servant. Jesus became silent 
in order to serve. Jesus became silent in order to create a new and different community, a community where free Roman aristocrats would, would learn from the slaves. A community where rich people would humble themselves and learn to listen to the poor. A community where men would learn to listen to women. And you just have to love James' subversive brotherly wisdom here. James watched his brother Jesus suffer in silence and die. James watched Jesus be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger so that we could have that all-important relationship with God. Amazing how Jesus served us in silence. And now James is telling us, you know, look, if, if you want life, if you want wisdom that can change all of your relationships, if you want to get this thing sorted out so that your relationships are healthy and they're impactful, well, you have to have Jesus. And you have to follow him. And you need the wisdom that comes out of his life and out of his teaching. You have to live and be like Jesus. And when we live that way, guess what? We become a kind of community that's unlike any other. We get together and remind ourselves to shut up. What other community does that? Well, we need to do that. Why? We need to learn to be like Jesus. We need to learn to serve. Serve each other, serve others. We need to be a community where everyone really is quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. And by being so, we serve and we love each other and others. That's what we get to do in the new, this new community. That's who we're supposed to be in this new community. Nobody gets a pass on this. So this week, ask God to help you put into play the wisdom that James is giving us from his brother Jesus. Now, there's one more teaching that James gives here, and it's a really, it's the most critical teaching. If you miss this, you miss your destiny. In fact, you even miss perhaps the opportunity to have the presence of God in your life, but we're out of time, so I'm just going to tell you about that next week. <laughs> you can come back for that one. Right now, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that in Jesus, the Word became flesh. Thank you for the gift of words that we have and forgive us for how often we misuse them. Help us to surrender our minds, our bodies, our souls, and our mouths to you. Help us, God, not simply to hear these words, but to actually do them. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen.